I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, welcome. So good we're here. Woo! Just lucky and glad to be alive. How you doing, honey? You know, there, it's a little off balance because there's so much going on and there's so many things I'm trying to do. And we are, to a certain degree... Changing things in your life is is like doing an overhaul in a car while it's still rolling down the road. You, you can't well, ever the stop your life completely. You can't put it up on blocks. So you have to be very careful about that. So I can feel that, that there's a lot, a lot of things that I'm trying to balance and be sure they're all coming from the same place. And simultaneously, I'm trying to understand how I'm doing it. That's like met, taking a meta position on something while you're doing it. It's another thing that is, is difficult so that I can teach it, you know, because we're still raising our son. Yes. So it's, it's kind of fascinating. How about you? Well, uh, since good. you ask, why don't we talk about, I don't know, what's going on? Okay, that's I just love that. <laughs> I get caught up in the theme song. So we are about to begin our almost week long family vacation. We put it off till almost the end of the summer. And what great luck we chose our Long Beach Airbnb the same week tropical storm is rolling in. How about that? Yeah. Timing. Timing is exquisite. It's, you know, one can only laugh and embrace it. I mean, yeah, I know. I know. Like, so, and this, I don't want to make a joke out of this because I'm actually heartbroken about what's happening in Maui. But of Uh, course, when we originally talked about a family vacation months ago, that was the destination point. We finally realized it was too expensive. 
and we wanted to stay closer to home. But had we done that, that would not have been the move either. And so sad about what's happening in Maui. And we can talk to our guests about that because she's part of a fundraiser that I'm actually going to be taking part in to, to help raise funds for the, the good people of Maui. But yeah, rain or shine, uh, apparently rain for the first couple of days. We will be in Long Beach near family, near the beach, everybody in the house, our step, my stepdaughter, the dog, our son, business. Yes, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'll be having friends come in, you know, and like I said, the timing is so precise that one is tempted to say, well, I could consider this to be random, which is probably the healthiest, sanest and most rational thing to do. Or I could find meaning in it. You know, so let, let me look for the meaning in it. Either way, you know, it's just all right. How do we roll with this? and have the best time that we possibly can. I know for me, one of the things I needed to do was to get this chunk of book done that I'm working on with my mentor, Larry, Larry Niven. So, and, and send that off to him so that I can spend the next week looking at, look, working on other things. Let's, let's, let's say working on other things, but take the, the better part of Valor might be being a little bit discreet here, but one is a Star Wars novel. You know, and then there are other things that we that we want to look at. And I need to be sure, you know, it's like set very specific goals for myself. By the time this week is over, I want to have made this much progress. Uh, but at the same time, that can't be based on doing more than an hour or two of work a day because it's vacation time. Yeah, I was about to say, listener, you notice that the first thing that we're talking about on vacation is what we're going to be writing but I think that speaks to just how much we love writing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no vacation would be complete without a change of scenery and being able to just fall into a project. Uh, although I'm not probably going to be working as much on the projects as I thought I would be, honey, because I have a surprise for you. you I think it. I think today I'm going to be typing the words "the end" on this pass. Excellent of our spec script, Bear Creek Law. Excellent, which I'm excellent, so excellent. excited about. So. Uh, that's fantastic, sweetheart. I can't wait. And hopefully I'll have a chance to to look at that. But what I promise is that I'll look at the other. Yeah, no, I know. Project. We got all kinds Probably of stuff on here. paper. You know, yeah. one of the things that, that I've noticed is that projects look different every form you look at them. That on a computer screen, it looks one way. On, a, on an iPad, it looks another way. If you look at it on your phone, it looks another way. And if you put it out on paper, it looks another way. And every time you do that, you shift perspective, you get more that low hanging fruit. You see different things that are easy to fix, you know, and that's all I try to do on any one pass. What's the stuff that's easy to fix? Because if I do that, then I stay ahead of the panic. Yes. I stay ahead of the fear that I can't do this. And if they're notes from, you know, like, like they're notes from Lucasfilm film. I did not read them for about three days. Then I read through them once. And now I'm fixing everything that I remember to fix that was in there. I'm not even looking at those notes again until I get to a slightly deeper form. Because if I read something and I remember it, then it's kind of going deep. Yeah. And I will give them as many of the things they ask for as I, as I possibly can. But I have – it makes me feel a little bit sick to look just at to look notes. look at notes. I get yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it always does. It. It, it, just, yes. it just does. So will I look at those? When will I look at those notes again? Probably after we get back. Yeah. I'll, say, I'll look at that, the notes again. Looking at notes is not a vacation activity. <laughs> I'll no, just say that no. much. It's, it's not like, a vacation activity. My stomach is doing, you know, nah, that's right not now just thinking about it. And that's just the little kid part of me that wants to believe that, you know, what's closest to my heart and what I spontaneously offer the world will be loved for its own, you know, its own sake. And it will. Well, no, it has to be massage, and that's where the adult part of our personality has to be prepared to comfort the child part. Of the it's okay. I love you. You are beautiful. But these men can write the big checks, so do what they ask. You know, <laughs> the, the muse can be steered in, in whichever yes, direction can. is necessary to get that check sometimes. So I'm just super excited about our guest. Can I introduce our guest? Is of there course, anything else we right need to talk about? We're probably going to have to take lead on this one, too, because, you know, you guys obviously have the bond. We met and we hung out and we had a writer's session together. Uh, we're, I, I don't know. Let me just, let me, lead Bardugo. You all know 
as the number one New York Times bestselling author of Ninth House, which, oh my gosh, I was reading with bated breath from the opening pages. I was like, oh no, she is not going to go there. And yes, she did go there. The creator of the Grishaverse, now a Netflix original series, which spans the Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology. I get it. I'm telling you, her short fiction has appeared in multiple anthologies, including the best American science fiction and fantasy. She lives in Los Angeles, thank goodness. That means we can get together in person. And of course, her sequel to Ninth House is called Hellbent, which I am reading, but I have to confess, I had to give Alex a little bit of a break because I like the idea that she's on a little bit of a vacation (laughs) before we jump back into the story. But welcome to the podcast, everybody. Lee Bardugo! Downright unruly. Sit down. Oh my goodness. I like this is like better than an affirmation. Like I'm getting so much love from this invisible audience. This is amazing. Well, speaking of so much love, I I just want to tell the story. Uh, We were on a panel together at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival with Stephen Graham Jones, which was incredible. Just a great panel hearing our stories. But what really struck me about you was afterward when we have the signing. And you have a rabbit, not rabbit in a negative way. They love you, your fans. It reminded me of like back in the 90s when Anne Rice used to go to Miami Book Fair, you know, and just like the adoration, like just watching your fans' faces as they came up to you, the amount of energy you were able to give them. I was just like so impressed with your, I was just impressed. I was impressed because I know that that's tough, that, that it's great to be with fans, but it's also hard. It takes energy. And I just want to say they're, they're lucky to have you. They're lucky to have your spirit. And, and I'm, I'm glad that we've been able to hang out a little bit and look forward to it again. So what, what's this ride been like for you, Lee, to the, the fame part? That's the, that's the thing. I first of all, I have to say, I sometimes feel like panels give me the like. I remember I got introduced to Gene Luen Yang's work because I was hosting, a, I was moderating a panel with him, so I went and read a bunch of his stuff and then became a super fan. And because we were on this panel together, I tried to get familiar with your work, and I was like, oh dang, like I've really been missing out. So that felt amazing. And then it's always a pleasure to then meet the person and have them be wonderful. So it felt like a very like felicitous panel to me. And yeah, it's been a weird ride, but like, I guess my attitude whenever I'm signing is just like, I have been to signings where I felt like the person was checked out a little bit, like maybe because they were having a hard day or they were tired or they had, you know, their flight was delayed or whatever it was, but it does change the feeling you have about the book. And I think in part, because I didn't get published till I was 37, there's a real feeling of like, this is the best job I've ever had. And I'd really like to keep it. So right. I Absolutely. Feel a tremendous amount of gratitude to anybody, especially anybody who goes to that particular book festival and stands in line in the heat and humidity just to get a book signed is it's kind of amazing. So question, Lee, do you, how often do you say this? Because I saw a quote from you. It says, I didn't publish my first book until I was 37. So if anyone out there is reading this and thinking your chance has passed, there's no expiration date on your talent. I yeah. think that that is such a powerful thing yes. to say. And it's something that people need to hear. And I just kind of, I, I wanted to add my voice to others who may have recommended that you consider that to be a thematic thread when you're reaching people. Because there are people out in your audience who desperately need to feel that it's not too late. And the 37 is a baby. Mm-hmm. Now it's, now as I approach 50, I'm like, yes, that yeah. I was we I was a bunch of fetus. But, but I you, think- you understand people are always the people who doubt themselves, it's always either too soon or too late. Either they don't have enough experience to write or it's too That's late. That's such a hard thing to, to hear. That's heartbreaking. That's your it, so it's heartbreaking, crazy. but it's real. And I just wanted you to I just wanted you to know that one of the reasons that you're on here is that you have something to offer those people. You are you are evidence of a <laughs> life path that is possible. And so I'm I just want to make sure that you know that there's you Thank have you. something besides your fiction to offer the world. Thank you. And I do say it a lot because you know, we live in a culture that really venerates youth. Right, mm-hmm. it, it fetishizes youth, and the stories that we see, you know, that, that make it to the Today Show and so forth, are either that you you wrote your first book when you were eighteen, or you wrote your first book when you were eighty, right? And there's this kind of 
this middle ground where you're just not interesting or the story is not compelling and those stories don't get told. But I know a lot of writers who either published in when they were in their 30s and their 40s for the first time or started getting acclaim then because they had been publishing for a long time and weren't overnight successes. And my fear is always that because I always get asked, you know, what's your advice for young writers? And I always take a step back and I'm like, this is my advice for all writers. Thank you. you. Yes. Because there's there's enough, you know, one of the worst moments, I think, if you were a smart kid is the moment when you stop being the smartest, youngest person in the room. When you've been told your whole life that what's interesting about you is that you're so smart for your age. Mm. You know, being a wunderkind has an expiration date on it. And so there is a moment for any gifted kid where that stops being the case and you can very easily start feeling like a failure. And I have people in my line sometimes who are aspiring authors and who, are, you know, in their 20s and they feel like their moment has passed because of the way that culture and media work. So yeah, if I can at any time be an example of like, just keep going, just keep writing. They only win if you don't keep writing. Like then I'm- You also touched on something else that I just heard. The people who were wunderkinds when they were younger. And then they find out that the world is not just opening itself to them once they get out there and start competing with other people at the same level. Yeah. Um, there are people who actually take the position that intelligence is a disadvantage in life because their intelligence did not get them everything they hallucinated that it would when they were younger. They never developed the emotional strength. They never developed a, a belief in themselves. They have a belief in the quality of their thought. So my attitude is that intelligence is problem solving, but wisdom is solving the right problems. So what what you want to look at is have you been you know one of the prob one of the problems to solve and this ties into something else that you said what is the path to a happy life mm-hmm. you know there are people who don't even realize it's possible to say I would like to be happy and when you said this following thing when you were you were at another job I believe it was for the reality show you said all of a sudden I realized that I not only didn't want my boss's job I didn't want her boss's job and I thought I'm going to quit all right see yes you looked ahead you were asking the question <laughs> what what is actually going to fulfill me what would actually make me happy and you realized you were not on that path so you made a change would you talk to us about that because People need to know that they can change. Yeah. I mean, look, I this is something that I always feel like I wish more. And we can talk about this, like the way that people exploit an underdog narrative and um, that people are often not transparent about sort of where they were in life or what support they got in life and so forth. But like, for instance, I always knew that if things really went to hell, you know, my mom owned her own home. I could go when I got divorced. I went, I I moved in with my mom, you know, I had no money in my bank account, but I had a place to go to go write my sequel, you know, like there was, and so I had that. And I think my life and my publishing career would have been very different had I not, but I can tell you that was, I was working at an ad firm. It was my, my first job out of college. I had submitted at least, I don't know, 40 to 50 resumes and gotten one bite (laughs) And I had gotten this job and it was terrible. It was a horrible, horrible job. And I was very frightened that that's what the rest of my life was going to look like. And I ended up quitting and I was a temp for probably about the next six months. And, you know, honestly made more money as a temp than I did as a, as a low level ad executive. And then, and then my friend got me a gig as in an unpaid internship for the advocate in New Haven. And I went and slept on her couch, actually her futon and, and did that and got to write. And then eventually, because I had an ethical boss, he said, you're do, I can't in good conscience, keep you on as an intern. Do you want to be a freelancer? So, but I was able to live with my friend basically rent-free. Like I paid for utilities, but like that wouldn't have been possible without that support too. Yes. So you know, I was able to sort of try things on. And I think the important thing that I take away from that is, you know, yes, I made that decision, but then it took me a a solid decade to then get to the place I wanted to be. I had wanted to be an author since I was a kid, but I had no idea how to do it. And when you, when you spoke on, you know, the, that intelligence is problem solving and wisdom is identifying the problem needs to be solved. You know, when I was 
I was very much that kid who had almost no life skills. I tested well. I looked great on paper and I didn't know how to fail. I didn't know how to get better at something incrementally. You know, I had spent most of my academic career cramming for things and writing the paper before they were doing getting away with it. And you cannot do that in life. And you sure as shit, sorry, you certainly cannot do that in a novel. You can't write a novel for nice. I've tried. It doesn't work. So for me, you know, learning how to be that person who could actually write a novel and who could experience the discomfort of writing a novel and sit with the feeling of it not being fun all of the time was so vital to me. But it took me a long time to get there and a lot of not great jobs to get there. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The part of it not being fun is a whole sermon. <laughs> and and also that period when you're you're trying to scrape together your, your little bit of finances, you're trying to make your way out in the world, but you also want to write fiction. And that's where a lot of aspiring writers fall off because it is hard to find the time to write, the commitment to write. How did you structure your life so that you were in this rat race, but you were also making time for your fiction? So early on, I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just blundering through everything, basically. I was moving from job to job and from city to city. And a moment came, probably, I mean, you know, I hate to darkest hour this stuff, but it was very much like I was in a terrible and not safe relationship. I was working in makeup and special effects, which I had sort of, you know, when my dad passed, I kind of threw all logic and away and just switched career. Like I was working in a perfectly reasonable job writing movie trailers, which actually had like a future where I had a nice boss who wanted me to move up and so forth. And I was like, I can't sit and look at my computer all day anymore. Like my grief is Mm. to, I can't be in my head. I hate my head right now. So I have to, I have to get out of it. And in that way, Moving to makeup and special effects was very helpful, but what I didn't realize at the time was it was also going to let that muscle, like that creative muscle rest during the day so that when I came home, even though I was very tired and I had been on, you know, on my feet and talking to people all day, I still had the energy to tell the story that I wanted to tell. And I made sure every night to, you don't sit down and put on the TV. You don't get like as tired as you are just for, and I would just say, actually I was following Jane Espenson on Twitter and she would do these writing sprints. And I'm like 15 minutes, you know, when you said, even if it's a sentence every day, 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes I spent doing that and not watching. So you think you can dance. So that's, you know, that's a, that that's a win, you know, and just taking those little wins. And I remember the pleasure of, Stacking up those pages every day and thinking, okay, like, look, and now I print something out and I'm like, oh my God, I've got to edit this whole thing. But like that at that time felt like these little victories every moment and carving that, those 15 minutes, that half hour out. And the one thing that I did and that I try to tell everybody to do when they have constrained time is when you leave off, just have a question in your mind for the next day. Know where you're headed because your subconscious is this incredible tool that is going to be working on it even when you don't realize you're working on it. When you're asleep. Yes. You can ask yourself a question before you go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, 
kind of just lounge around in bed a little bit in the hypnagogic state, that state between being awake and asleep, and ask your mind, oh, do you have any thoughts about what I asked you last night? It's astounding how regularly your unconscious will give you something you never dreamed of. It's just like, yeah, it's there. Yeah. But you have, you, have you have to pose the question. To, you have to ask the question, and then you have to switch over to doing something else altogether, relaxing, sleeping, you know, to to allow the ego, the part of you that doesn't feel like you're smart enough to do it, to rest. Yeah. And yeah. And, and let your, let your wisdom flow through. That, that definitely, I feel fortunate in that I think that having that direction, it allows you to keep momentum yeah. It allows you to build your confidence because then you're actually moving through the story instead of wasting half of those minutes thinking about what's supposed to come next or what right. the next thing is. And I think too, you know, I would talk to myself a lot, which I still do. And for me is a super, like, I'm, I've always been a verbal person who works things out by talking them talking them out with friends, talking them out with my partner, like that is the way that I problem solve. And so when I was on the way to set, or if I had the day off and I was, I could go walk to coffee, I would pretend, this is sort of embarrassing, but I will tell you, I would pretend I was talking to an editor that I didn't have. And she would be saying to me, okay, what are you tackling today? What are you freaked out about? And I would talk it out and be like this and this. And I was essentially giving myself advice and also just verbalizing these things that otherwise are up here and can create this kind of paralysis where you sit down and you're carrying all of that as opposed to, all right, now I have a plan. Now I'm moving forward. I love that. And I want to go back to this, you know, uh, I still have my father, but I did lose my mother about 10 years ago. And there was an interesting relationship between grief and, and my writing journey then. And I'm wondering if if you saw ways that grief was clarifying in terms of your creative process, was it a place to escape to go to your writing? I do think that when I finally dug into the book that would become Shadow and Bone, my first novel, I was absolutely escaping into it. And I'm always a little nervous about talking about this because, you know, it's dangerous to think of writing as therapy. You know, Mm. writing is not therapy. Therapy is what we need because we're writers, but therapy is therapy and writing is writing. And that said, there's no question that sort of two things were happening for me. One, I was able to escape into a world where, you know, when I talk about the appeal of a young adult, I always talk about like, I know so many adults fully grown adults, over 18 adults who feel that they have something in them that hasn't been recognized or tapped into, who are waiting for the magical mentor to say, you're special, you're capable, who are waiting for that, you know, it's that Babette's feast line, you know, just give me a chance to do my best. And so I feel like that was all being poured into this, you know, pretty classic chosen one narrative. But then at the same time, I was reminding myself that I was good at things. You know, I was with a partner who was determined to convince me that I kind of wasn't good at anything. And you Mm. hear it enough and you start to believe it. And that, again, is it's difficult to talk about those things because I had always conceived of myself as a smart, independent lady. But, you know, question that happens. You know, usually when people talk about the difference between therapy, which I think everybody should go to. And I just one of the, you know, I'm, I'm, I have nothing but respect for it, but that you could use it as kind of a general check-in, you know, it's like going to the doctor and kind of saying, you know, look at the system. How's it, how am I doing? You know, or it could be because you have a specific issue that you want to work on. But most of the time, if you take care of something that's like a broken bone and we all get banged up as we move through life. So there's no finger pointing here. I've certainly needed that. But I think most of the time, what we need is more like a coach, mm-hmm. somebody who, you know, the bones aren't broken, the muscles need to be developed or coordinated, you know, emotionally. So you've said several times that you were with a partner who was more than unsupportive, yeah. who was actually tearing you down. And this sounds to me like the kind of thing that some people would work out in their writing by writing stories about damaging relationships. And other people would say, no, I'm going to go to an expert, somebody who's going to look at me from the outside and, and try to identify the part of me that chose this, this bozo. You know, what in the world was that part of me thinking and trying to do? I mean, How- I'm going to, I'm going to bring some realness here Uh-oh. Bring <laughs> and, realness. and it's and it's and again like I'm always this is shit we I have not talked about another interview so I'm like Ugh. but I was in therapy at the time yes. I wasn't with the right therapist 
Like, yes. and, and I think that's so important. Like, I think people, there's such a hump, right. To get people to pursue therapy. They talk about it. Yes. And, and I say this as somebody who's done the same thing. I got to do it. I got to do it. It's like going to the dentist, right? You're like, I got to do it. And then you finally do it. You're like, why did I wait so long to do this? I guess nobody says that when they go to the dentist, but you know what I mean? Yes. And I, so, and then once you've gotten over that hump, if you don't click, or if you don't feel you're on the right path, it can be very hard to then say, no, I'm going to go someplace else. And as I've gotten older now in, in every area of my life, I feel more comfortable checking in with myself and saying, this isn't working for me, or there's something in my gut that's telling me, and I am going to listen to that as opposed to arguing myself out of it. Mm-hmm. I was younger. I don't think I had that sense. And I think the danger is you, you're under someone's care. And so you think I'm doing everything right. Surely if, if this was all as wrong and as awful as I thought it was, I would have guidance. You know, I would be getting different guidance from this person. And I've always been hesitant to talk about that because I don't want to dissuade people from therapy because I believe in it very firmly. And when I finally got with the right therapist, you know, I unlocked a lot of stuff and was able to move forward. And now I have a wonderful kind, supportive, loving partner who I I couldn't wish for a better human in my life. And that's partially the result of going through something, learning what you don't want, learning why you made those choices, and then making different choices. Yes, all of that. Beautifully put. And in some ways, the right therapist-client relationship reminds me of an agent-client relationship. You know, an agent can change your life. Yes. Or an agent can do literally nothing for you. And it really depends on that, that right teaming. It's damage to people's careers too. Like you have oh, yeah. to find a person. You have right. to find a person who gets you and then who's going to fight for you. You're looking, you're looking for like a magical combination of like emotional coach and warrior and diplomat. Like that's hard to come by. So you mentioned shadow and bone. This is the work that, that I don't know if it's what you're best known for, but uh, obviously it's been adapted for television. It's very popular. That's your first novel though. That's not a typical experience. So what was that like to go from, I want to do this. I hope I can be a writer. I'm trying to work on my first novel to Now you're on TV with legions of fans. That's a pretty big transition. Well, Shadow and Bone was my first novel. Okay. Optioned fairly quickly by a different company entirely. It got optioned by DreamWorks. Oh. Which, um, but I knew at the time that that was a long shot. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm I grew up here. Like I I didn't have any illusion. I knew how expensive it would be to make. I also knew that the book was successful, but not like I knew what big success looked like, and I knew what it might take. So I, you know, the executive who brought that in then left the company. And so the project languished. This is story old, tale as old as time. Yes. And and those rights languished for a long time. And then I honestly, and Netflix had expressed interest very early on when those rights were still at DreamWorks, before Netflix was the <laughs> the power that they are now, they had, and when they were they were still in their old offices, when they were still <laughs> You know, they 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 said, you know, these rights. And I said, well, you know, I'm working on this new book, Six of Crows, that I think would actually be much easier to adapt for television. They had no interest. And then it was many years later that they came on board. And that was partially because, you know, they were interested in obtaining those rights and doing a young adult fantasy series. But the reason we ended up with Eric Heiser as our showrunner is because of Six of Crows, which is by far my, well, it like is probably my most successful book. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it was the sort of the career path changing book where all of a sudden I, where, you know, my signings changed, where everything changed and, and that has continued to sell in a way that I don't think the first trilogy would have sold without the show, if I'm being completely honest. So that, you know, it, it wasn't just one book. It was sort of like a, a, an arc that had taken me through five books by the time we. Um, oh, okay. I had the order wrong. And Got by it. the time, and by the time that show came out, you know, like by the time it came out, there were then seven books in that series, plus a couple of books of short stories. Okay. So, yeah. I, I would like to, I always like kind of getting granular with things and, and, and looking as deeply as I can. When people talk about you publishing your first book at 37 and being an overnight sensation, immediately getting, you know, your work, getting option and so forth and so on. I think that people, there will be a lot of people who say, my God, you know, look at that talent as if you were, you sprang full born, you know, full blown from the brow of Zeus 
as opposed to looking at the time you spent in reality television, what did you say in your article? Taking all of this footage and shaping a narrative out of it. I didn't do that job. Let's be really clear. I was was like the lowest rung of the ladder. (laughs) Yes, you were the lowest rung of the ladder, but you got to observe what the people above you were doing. And you got to observe what the final product was. And you knew that, that, that you logging all of these different things. There is a part of our brain as writers that thinks of infinite scenes and sequences and conversations and actions and individual bits of dialogue and shapes it into a narrative. You were working on part of that process. Even if you were at the bottom of that, you got to see how the sausage was made. That <laughs> that stops it from being some sort of a magical, you know, oh, my God, you know, the ideas come to you full born. It just no, you saw it was a process. You, you do this and you do this, you do this. I think between that and advertising, you're describing what where you could have learned some of the skills that when you began to write you had that stuff. You've been working on this stuff. You've done your work. It wasn't something that you just had. These were things that you learned through life experience and then applied them to something that would give you more pleasure, more joy. Well, this is something I tell people, I guess there's sort of two things. One is to be clear, like, and this is, I think something that's really important. You know, when we can talk about success being a moving target and how to be happy when good things happen to you, as opposed to instantly switching to the next goal that that uh, that makes itself apparent and the next peak in the mountain range but you know shadow and bone was successful but it was a one and done it listed and then it was off like it didn't have a lot of legs and the series built like it did what publishers want you to do right where that first week of hardcover every time it comes out is you're seeing an increase in those sales but sort of all of that paid off in any way but part of that was learning on the job i could not have written six of crows as my first book because of exactly what you're talking about, like the process of writing, the po- process of being in in this community and writing short stories, I think too, like all of those things, like I was, I was really getting a chance to work at a different level than I had before. The jobs before that, absolutely. Like I used to, I, I've had a lot of weird jobs, you know, I was a beer girl when I worked in New York. Like I, I, I did write movie trailers, which has been of infinite help in terms of just like writing flap copy and thinking about proposals and thinking about log lines and thinking about why stories work or don't. And you're right. I never really thought about it that way, but the truth is we were all, you know, mostly aspiring writers, directors, actors who were locked into this freezing cold room, watching this largely inane, you know, these tapes of people, but you were, you were looking for story. You were seeking out story strands. I don't know whether or not talent exists per se. It's obvious that some people are taller, some people are bigger, some people are smarter. It's not that I'm denying that talent exists. It's that I've never seen the concept to be useful, so I ignore it. What I see is what it is that you just said. People who who follow their passions, they, they, they try to survive, they do things, they learn things, they're constantly looking for ways to put this together to increase the amount of joy in their lives. You talked about moving from one project to another can be dangerous if you don't stop and celebrate your victories. I think it was that the implication. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I love this idea. Yeah, absolute agreement. What makes you happy to actually sit down and think what, what actually gives me pleasure? What brings yes. me pleasure? Like, so you understand how few people we talk about how few people believe that they can, they can literally say what makes me happy. Now, what happened, it happens that what makes people happiest is not going directly to being happy. It's indirect things, hard work sometimes, you know, painful honesty sometimes leads to joy. But you do have to kind of know that that's the direction that you want to go in. Otherwise, you'll just get trapped in escaping pain. And I think you need to check in with yourself sort of at every stage, right? Yes. Because initially for me, it was, I just want to finish a book. Then it was, I just want to find an agent. Then it was, I just want to sell my book. Then it was, I just want that book to be a success. I just want to hit the New York Times bestseller list. I just want to be number one. I just want an adaptation. Like it, you can, you can trap yourself into this cycle of always needing more, you know, always needing this thing to be fed. And I've seen it happen to people and it is 
who are wildly successful, often much more successful than I am. And I'm like, I, and because I've seen that modeled, I've been able to say, okay, take a pause, look out at your garden, look at your wonderful partner. Think about the fact that you are doing something for a living that very few people get to do. You know, right. this is my full-time job. I don't think I would appreciate as much if I hadn't had so many weird jobs. If I hadn't had, I always say, I don't trust people who have never had a bad boss. You know, like I don't ah. trust people who have never had a Sunday where they thought, oh God, I don't want to, I don't want to go in on Monday. Or who. if you haven't cried in the parking lot before you went into work, exactly. <laughs> we've, we've been there. Yeah. You haven't, you know, if, if all you want to do is win, you can do that simply by playing tic-tac-toe with little with little kids. That's true. And you'll you'll never lose. You'll either, you know, break even or win every time. People who've never experienced heartbreak have are people who have not developed the muscle, the habit of pushing themselves to the edge. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons why it's so important to have a safe partner, to have yeah. a loving home, a nest, a place where you know you are safe to roll over and expose your tummy. You know, because if you if you are not safe, you will never take the kind of risks that could break you open if you fail. Yes. You have to feel safe. Will it be okay if I get knocked out, if I get knocked down, if I get bloodied? Are you going to laugh at me or are you going to hold me and and, and tell me I'm a good boy for trying? You you need that. There's, you know. And I, (laughs) this may be controversial, but when people talk to me about what to major in or going into an MFA, one of the things I always talk about with them is like, how much debt are you okay to carry? Because that can be a sword hanging over your head and that will change your decisions too. And that will change your ability to be creative too. You know, you have to think about this kind of holistic view of your life. And, you know, what I always, I'll have kids come to me and they'll say, my parents want me to major in this, but I want to be a writer. I said, you know what? If your parents are paying for your college, go ahead, do that. And then you're going to have a much more interesting palette to pull from when you're writing. You can look up the syllabi for all those writing courses and you can read what they're reading and you can do what they're doing. And I, I, you know, to me there, and I know sometimes people don't want to hear that. They want to hear, follow your dreams, do whatever you need to do to embrace your passions, which Great. But I also live in the real world and I know what it is to pay rent and what it is. And I feel like the the more space you can carve out for yourself and the more security you can carve out for yourself, the more room you have to feel creative. And the people who I, I think like I think I'm thinking specifically of two of my friends who they have kids, they didn't have childcare during the pandemic, like they they were writing in these tiny little carved out spaces, right? Like to do, and they were doing it and they did it. And they have like a level of hustle that I can only aspire to, but like that to them, that was worth it because at the end, you know, they could be both a parent and a creative person, but carving out that space for yourself is hard. And I'm like, don't stack the de- the deck against yourself. You know, it's also okay to finish college go get a job and then do the MFA. Like there isn't this singular path toward what we want to do. No, absolutely. And I could not agree more in terms of the security. My parents wanted me to be a journalism major for a secure position, which is funny now, but uh, that's how long ago I went to college. But I knew I needed that. I needed to not be sleeping on a friend's sofa. I did not think I could write and also feel insecure. And even though I didn't enjoy every day of being a journalist, I'm so grateful for that experience because I've met so many people, got so many story ideas. And yeah, that, that worked out, you know, before we move on to sort of the crux of what we like to talk about on our podcast, which is how you stay centered and that work-life balance, which you've just alluded to, I wanted to touch on short stories really quickly because as a very successful novelist, you know, you don't have to be writing short stories, but I think you probably enjoy writing short stories. I know I do. I wrote two collections worth of short stories while I was working on my novel, <laughs> The Reformatory, which is coming out later this year. And they are just a, a special form. And also, I think, an overlooked form by a lot of writers who want to race to the finish line and become best-selling novelists. So what are your thoughts on short stories? 
I was very fortunate because the first three short stories I wrote were done. It was when Macmillan, so Tor, you know, distributes through Macmillan and they basically had a deal where it was like, if you want to put a story up on our platform and they said, you know, write a prequel story. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to write something that, that has its own life and that can stand without the books because I, I knew it was going to be an introduction to a different group of readers for me. And so I wrote a story called The Witch of Duva, which was my kind of super horrific, not that it wasn't horrific already, but my kind of extra horrific take on the Hansel and Gretel story. And then, you know, what I learned was that my writing, especially at a sentence level, improved so much when I was dealing with these small things, these little stories. And unlike my novels, I don't outline my short stories. Like I, I usually start with an opening line and I tell myself the story in the bathtub and then I get out of the tub and I write down what I remember and then I go from there. But for me, I think being able to focus on a small thing where there isn't room to futz around really helped to sharpen the way that I write and also the way I think about how story functions. And you're right. I think it is an overlooked form because it's almost like a an experimental ground where you can try a lot of different things without having committed, you know, two or three years of your life to something. I will say too, though, and having read your short stories in The Wishing Pool, I think that it's a not everybody can do that. <laughs> you know, like I think it is actually in the same way that like not everybody can write a picture book or be a poet. Like, like that is like, like if I were pointing people, I'd point them to you. I'd point them to Kelly Link, like people who do things with a form that take you on an emotional journey in a very short period of time. Like that is really powerful. And I think there's a power in them that doesn't always exist in a novel. Like it's an, it's like a jab, right? Like the mm. novel might work you over, but like this is going to be the short, swift kick or the sh- the the swift jab to the jaw you didn't see coming, and that for me is as a reader thrilling, and as a writer, I think more challenging in some ways than a novel. I've always um, thought that uh, probably word for word, short stories are going to be more challenging than novels. Yeah, um, because you, you it's know. like the sprinting as opposed to a marathon. You put more energy per per second into a sprint. You know, so it's it's more intense, but the the core skills are the same. It's yes, just, it's an application of those skills. So the people who, yeah. who would try to say that short story writing is completely different than they're exaggerating. You know, I, I think that that the same skills repeat themselves in sort of a fractal fashion between. I think the economy demanded of short stories in terms of introducing a character, making you give a damn about that character, then putting your character through something that has more than that. It isn't just choreography and then giving you a satisfying ending, right? Like the endings of short stories, like you don't get all this runway and lead up and I'm going to bring all the plots together. You know, you have (laughs) it, 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 that economy I think is a challenge. And I think that absolutely then translates to bringing that economy to the novel so that there's less filler so that every moment feels vital. And I like that. And I think it, There's almost a, without getting too woo-woo, for me, when I'm working on a short story and it's really working, there's almost like a trance state to it that is kind of like when you fall into a particular chapter or a particular moment or a particular bit of backstory. And that pleasure is, I think, very keen and is sort of what I, as a writer, you know, that is the, often there's, you know, it's that, I think it's, I don't remember if it's Wordsworth or Longfellow who is like, you know, the joy is not in writing, it's in having written. And a lot of the time that's true, right? But there are those times when you fall in and you enter that state and then you, it's less about what you're producing than the fact that you weren't all in entirely conscious of it, where it's taking you along, where you're in the scene, where the, where the story is flowing in front of you, unspooling, and you're just trying to keep up with it. Those are the moments that I think when we think about the pleasure, or at least for me, when I think of the pleasure of writing, that's what I think of. Question for you. Beautiful. You sound like somebody who's constantly pushing themselves to, you know, to kind of constantly trying to explore your edge, trying to see where you can go and what you can do and how many things you can do, which means that inevitably you're hitting stress. You're hitting fear. You're hitting self-doubt. So the yeah. question I would have is when you when you go into the place that some people find as the door to depression or fear 
or writer's block or whatever. How do you stay on the horse? How do you stay balanced? How do you preserve life? How do you find joy in life and simultaneously seek the highest level of performance? Man, that is a challenging question. I think, yes, I always want to get better. And I think that I think there are writers who very successfully reproduce sort of the same kind of story again and again, and more power to them because I think often readers want, they're like, scratch that itch, you know, like that's what I want to see again and again. And then I think there are, um, some of us are like maybe subconsciously trying to create these new challenges. When I wrote Ninth House, I had never written a murder mystery before, right? And I had never written anything that was set in in our world before. The book that I am revising right now and that hope, well, <laughs> I keep saying hopefully, but I mean, my publisher plans to bring it out in April is, a, you know, it's a historical fantasy. It's set in Renaissance Spain. And that was a level of research and it had a very different challenge, right? Like I'm not, it's not a puzzle book. It's a character book. And where I was determined to not, Add a lot of bells and whistles. That was the challenge I was setting for myself. For me, I think that there's a few things. One is I've learned that the thing that makes me feel more stable and more comfortable is research. So, and that's not true for everyone. That's because of my particular brain makeup. I, you know, some people need to take a walk. Some people need to, you know, work on something else, work on a different project or switch POVs or take a break or whatever it is. I need to research. That's the thing that makes me feel like, okay, even if it's not feeding directly into it, that's going to ground me. And I used to really punish myself for that because it felt like I was hiding from the work when in fact, that's what I need to move forward in the work. Emotionally, the more you do this, I think the more, the more I believe like that, that, it, that I recognize those moments of insecurity as part of the process. And the thing that I try to encourage newer writers to think about is that when we, when we are, we don't see this in culture. We don't see people struggling with art really in culture. We'll see somebody, you know, everything goes to montage, right? Somebody's working on something, montage, magically, you have a thing at the end, you type the end, hooray. Right. Great. (laughs) But unfortunately, I think, and I think also when we're young, we have this confidence, we have this arrogance that everything we write is brilliant. It's genius. Like you said, the, the, the child side, the frosted mini wheat side of all of this, right? Like this is, it's fun. It's pleasurable. And so we get an idea in our head that if we're struggling, something is wrong. You know, this is a sign that we're getting it wrong, that we're on the wrong path, that the idea isn't good enough, that we're not good enough. And to remind yourself to the best of your ability that when you hit those moments where you feel like you're failing, when you're in the hard days, those are actually signposts saying you're trying to do something bigger and better than you've ever done before. Of course, it's going to feel shitty. Of course, you're going to feel like you're failing because it's new and it's scary. But if you can stay in it in that moment, if you can stay on the horse in that moment, then the next day will be better. The next day will be better. The next day will be better. But that those moments of fear and insecurity are not actually signs that something is wrong. They're signs that something is actually right. And that you just have the balls to pursue something that is challenging. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, earlier, you mentioned your garden and mm-hmm. and tools to sort of stay, stay centered. Do you have any tools that you've either learned to embrace or hope to embrace that help you stay centered that are physical, whether it's walking, your garden, that you can suggest? Well, look, I cannot really walk very well anymore because of my disability. But when I could, yes, walking was super helpful. Even like taking a shower, you know, like those negative ions definitely do their work. Like anything you can Mm. kind of break up the physicality of something. My having a garden is just one of the best things that ever happened to me. We were in an apartment for most of the pandemic. So having one of the things we wanted was outdoor space and having this little garden I have. And what's interesting is, so I have the garden in the back. And then I have two beds in the front. They're two raised beds. And they're my experiment beds, right? And shit goes wrong there all the time. All the time. Things die. <laughs> Things mutate. All my tomatoes look weird. But they're <laughs> a good reminder to me that like you are allowed to have space where you experiment and where you don't get it right. And that's okay. Um, I'm not a good cook. I've never been a good cook. I was raised on frozen food, you know, so cooking for me and baking are actually super stress relievers because I cannot focus on anything else. I don't have the language for it. And so it's Mm. like, I am in that recipe and then trying to do the thing and the results again, 
and yeah. not having the instincts and experience. You're measuring yeah. that teaspoon exactly, it's right. exactly, exactly. Where I'm like, oh, it's got to be just right. I don't know. Is it a mince or a chop? I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like, but that is for me. And then there's something at the end, and the thing may not is usually not perfect. It's often and it's occasionally like a sitcom level disaster. But like that also is something that unlike a novel can't be tuned and it is what it is and you serve it at you don't. And the, also the beautiful thing is even if the cake isn't right, you put a cake in front, front of somebody, they're going to be happy. I know yeah. I would be. So there you go right there. <laughs> about, uh, do you have any meditation practice, journaling, cuddling and talking about your day, rituals I, of life that help you to cope? I pray and meditate every morning and every night. Excellent. And I sit in in gratitude for what I have. And that is something that I don't break from ever or try not to, you know, my husband and I have a fairly regular routine, which I really thrive on. And I think, but I, something I also realized was that being able to go for a drive or go to a movie or all those things, a lot of the things we couldn't do in pandemic times and travel, those things have been I've realized how vital they are to me, you know, going on a writing retreat. I've been very lucky to hook up with a group of friends and we retreat together once or twice a year. And that is super valuable to me. And I think having a community of people who I can go to and say, you know, can you do a read for me and who I am? And I love reading people's work and CPing it. Like, I think it keeps me sharp and it's always easier to see the problems in somebody else's work than in, than in your own, you know, and that then makes me feel capable. Like, Oh, I know a thing. So that, too, is a big part of my life. But I think the one thing I would say is, you know, there's a lot of talk now about work-life balance. And the way I think about it is almost not in a single moment or single week, a single year. That work-life balance, I think, exists over the course of a career. And, you know, there were three years of my life when I did nothing but work. And I, I mean, I didn't date. I didn't. I barely saw my friends unless they were coming over to work. I had my head down and I was just pushing. And I don't regret it because then now, you know, that set me up with a foundation that then I now can take a little bit more time between books. I now can recognize like, okay, I don't have to be in that state. And so the balance has come a little bit later for me. I think that that's, Love it. that is relatively common among high-performing people who are healthy. <laughs> that, that, they, that balance is not static like a stool. It's dynamic like running down a hill. Yeah. So you're always out of balance in a little way. And, and if you're fortunate, you switch to being unbalanced in a different way <laughs> and then unbalanced in a different way. And you, it's like, we can't really multitask. We can switch back and forth between things rapidly. So it's, it's a little bit like that, that old vaudeville act with the spinning plates, you know, yeah. and the guy's running back and forth. Can and I hear that singing of, again? That was cute. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of do that. And I think that ideally you switch back and forth between before the plate falls before the relationship is damaged, before you hurt your body, before you run yeah. out, you know, before yeah. you lose your momentum. Knowing how to balance those things is probably one of the hardest things in the world. And as we warned you, <laughs> because it is hard in that way, Tanana Reeve and I saw, you know, you guys, you guys vibed because you have enough com com similar values. You saw the world and the work the same way. And so you could get together and play. Tanana even and I saw the same thing in each other. And one of those things was that question of how do we survive this game? How do we create what we're trying to create and be healthy and happy and, and loving? And out of those conversations and that work came our year-long life writing program which every week gives people prompts about their work, but also asks them about their lives and asks them how they're taking care of themselves and gives them tools to be able to do that so that they can live high energy, creative lifestyles without destroying themselves with stress and without you know, living in a cave and not having love and health and, and happy because the whole thing is about ultimately being happy. It's so funny. We, honey, we've been doing this podcast for more than a year. It's called the Life Writing Podcast. <laughs> That's right. But I think sometimes people forget this is actually a course and it's not just based on 
Steve and I sharing a similar vision or conversations like we've had with Lee today and all of our other guests. But we've been teaching for years. I've taught in an MFA program. I, I'm still teaching at UCLA. Steve has taught many places. and we UCLA and the Smithsonian Institute and the Seattle University. And, you know, it's we love writers. We right. love writers. I love this path so much. I have so, so many writers are my people. And the, the sentence a day concept, which has been tremendously helpful to me personally, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, is one of the centerpieces of it, but it's only a small piece of it. So definitely do check out our Life Writing Premium course. The guy with the deep, sexy voice talks about it at the end of the podcast at <laughs> www.lifewritingpremium.com and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero. In the adventure of your lifetime. Thanks Lee, so, thank much you so much to our here. guest, Lee Bardugo. <laughs> Lee, are there any links? Where can people find you? How can your fans keep in touch with you? You can find me at leebardugo.com. And the only social I'm really good about keeping up on is my Instagram, which is lbardugo, just the initial L, L Bardugo. And yeah, I am I have a newsletter too, which you can subscribe to on my website. But yeah, please come see me and come come out in April when I have this new book out that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Yay. Okay, Yay. Thanks a lot. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.